When people look at Mark Zuckerberg, what do they see? Maybe something like the Jesse Eisenberg character in The Social Network. Kind of conniving, maybe Machiavellian. Or they think of the memes. Mark Zuckerberg robotically eating bread. Mark Zuckerberg repeatedly touting Sweet Baby Ray's barbecue sauce. Mark Zuckerberg blank-faced in front of Congress. But if Mark Zuckerberg had his way, you'd think of him as Mark Zuckerberg product and technology visionary helping to shape the creator economy, virtual reality, and the future of communication. If you think of robots, you won't think of Mark Zuckerberg as robotic. You'll think of actual robots, maybe ones that he actually built. This is the Information 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. On this episode, I spoke to my colleagues Alex Heath and Sylvia Varnum O'Regan, who just did a bunch of reporting on this topic. They have heaps of details from inside of Facebook about how Zuckerberg and the company overall are trying to improve their image. It'll probably take more than some chats on Clubhouse and Discord, but it's a place to start. Then we're going back to the office, literally. I have finally been able to record this podcast from an office rather than my apartment. The future of real estate is remote, they tell us, or it's hybrid or flex or something. I'm going to speak to real estate and tech expert Justin Bettecare, who's the CEO of a founders fund backed startup called Raise Commercial Real Estate. We're going to talk about what all of those terms mean and what can go right and what can go wrong in the future of the office. But first, let's get to Alex and Sylvia and Facebook. All right, I'm joined now by my information colleagues, reporters Alex Heath and Sylvia Varnum O'Regan. Alex, you've been on the show many times and you've covered tech companies for a while. Sylvia, you're new to the information and to the Facebook beat. Um, and you all decided to tackle a fascinating story about how Mark Zuckerberg has decided to take back control of his image and the company's image sort of just as it's gone through years of, of battering, essentially. Um, Sylvia, why did you want to jump into this topic? Yeah, well, we noticed that Mark was doing a lot of public appearances. He was very online and he was um, appearing on Clubhouse, on Discord. He was on Instagram Live and it was really a playful side of Mark as well. He was talking about things that he loves, talking about product. After so many years with Facebook, uh, headlines around Facebook being dominated with policy issues, it seemed like a bit of a shift. And so we really wanted to know what was behind that and what the thinking was uh, behind getting Mark out more, talking about product and showing a more human side. Alex, what do you think Mark Zuckerberg's public persona has been in recent years? Well, recently it's been pretty bad. I mean, as we say in the story, he told employees last week that he knows that his persona is borderline robotic, very serious, and he's trying to have more fun. I think Facebook has gone through cycles where the scrutiny of it picks up around elections, around you know privacy breaches, data breaches. Um, and last year was really one of the worst years I can remember covering the company for many years in terms of the reputation. And I would say in the last few years, Mark has had to drift out of being this, you know, geeky engineer, product loving CEO to being this statesman, um, policy forward leader. And, you know, I love stories that uh, kind of uh, go into 
how are companies trying to actually shape the PR narrative um, about their leaders and about the company in general? You know, this is public relations and communications. It is a it is a craft as much as reporters like us kind of go to war against it at some point. Uh, you know, it is it is a craft. And Sylvia, I mean, part of the piece goes into, OK, how is this company how is Facebook strategizing to improve Mark Zuckerberg's image? What goes into that? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things about coming onto this beat and covering Facebook is uh, just learning how huge the PR arm is in this company. There are hundreds of communications folks operating inside Facebook. And so what, what we learned, which is that there was a strategy in place for 2021 which involved getting Mark out talking about product more and getting Nick Clegg um, out talking about policy. That's Nick Clegg, their head of, uh, basically their their politics chief. He's the VP of Global Affairs and Communications, right? So he was going to take the lead on talking about policy issues, which you've seen in the aftermath of the Oversight Board's decision this week. So we learned that there was a strategy in place and that this had been distributed inside the company. Do you think this is also a PR strategy aimed also at Facebook's own employees? Yes, I do think it's about talent. You know, we say this in the story. Uh, Facebook is, um, they're they're fiercely competing for talent in a few key areas, particularly AR, VR, um, where Apple and others are are also hiring aggressively. And I think this really affects the, the perception of the company in the US, a lot of these headlines, and that's where they hire, you know, their, their technical talent mostly. And yeah, I think it's about making the company look more innovative, making it look like a good place to work, a place that's doing good in the world. Um, but they still have a huge, you know, uphill battle there. I don't think they're anywhere near um, fixing that problem. But I think Mark believes if he's out there more talking about the products that, you know, at least people could maybe ignore the other stuff um, as much. And I think we should just note, like, you know, why are we spending so much time talking about Mark Zuckerberg's communication strategy? You know, like, this is not uncommon for CEOs of large companies to have huge comms teams or to have, you know, strategies around their appearances. Um, I think Mark is actually pretty unique and Facebook even kind of calls this out in like their SEC filings, for example. And I've just kind of anecdotally heard this over the years that um, he's kind of at a level of visibility that is like Pope level in terms of how many people on planet Earth recognize him and know, know about him. And so he's just this like kind of uniquely famous tech CEO. He's one of the last kind of remaining uh, founders of like early web um tech giants that is still kind of running a company. He's the controlling shareholder of Facebook, a $900 billion company, you know, as you guys note in the piece. And he's 36 years old, you know, he's probably going to be doing it for a long time to go. And um, he he is the face of the company. And he's just incredibly famous. And so um, I think it's very fascinating to watch him kind of like, uh, change his persona in different eras for the company. And I think this just so shows that he believes that Facebook is going to come out of the last few years uh, stronger and they're going to be able to turn it around and, and be looked at more favorably. And I think the AR VR work where we noticed, you know, in the store he's spending a lot of time in 
is a, is something that he thinks is going to help Facebook kind of change its image because it's an entirely new frontier uh, in terms of he wants to invent something that's you know as big as the mobile phone. I just think it's a fascinating topic because of Mark's kind of unique visibility. No, that's a, that's a really good perspective. I mean, the skepticism I would have, or the, the skeptical question I would have is, is Mark Zuckerberg abdicating his responsibility as the CEO of a company that has enormous impact on politics and culture and information? Like, yeah, maybe he's burnt out on doing a bunch of congressional hearings, but it, it seems like from reading between the lines on your story, he wasn't even involved in you know, some really key decisions involving what to do about Donald Trump's presence on Facebook, for instance, which was in the news again this week because of a Facebook oversight board ruling that, that, you know, basically, you know, said Facebook has to deal with this. You didn't come out and say this in the story, but I'm curious if you were asking sources or trying to get a sense of, is he taking his eye off the ball at all on some important political and policy issues? Well, that, I think I mean I think that's an interesting point. I guess to hedge, I would say maybe it's too early to tell. I mean, what we canvas in the story is his recent behavior, and we're looking forward into twenty twenty one and what the year holds. So time time might tell on that front. <laughs> I think it's clear that he's trying to take a step back. What that looks like. In the long term, I'm not really sure. It's a tough question because people want the you know him to take more responsibility, and I'm sure he feels that. But there is this analogy that we made in the story to the printing press, and um, I do think he abstracts it out a bit to that degree where it's like, um, you know, bad stuff can be done with the tools. It doesn't necessarily mean you can mitigate all of the bad. Obviously, you want to try to to lessen it as much as possible. But um, we would all agree that the world is better after the printing press. And I think he would say that the world is still better after Facebook was made. And in terms of the regulatory or the political road ahead, um, Sylvia, you know, this wasn't necessarily like the story you were writing, but, you know, what are the potential obstacles in in Facebook's, you know, sort of potential uh, road here? Well, I'll say one of the big issues that they're coming up against now is the oversight board because they had this huge decision to make around whether to um, allow Trump back on Instagram and Facebook after his accounts were indefinitely suspended. And the oversight board released its decision and basically they said the uh, penalty that Facebook had come up with, the indefinite ban was too vague and they weren't satisfied that it complied with their own standards. So they've now basically flung it back to Facebook and said, this isn't good enough. We're not going to do your dirty work. You need to reconsider this and within six months make a clear decision. And so a lot of attention and eyeballs are on this. And I think in terms of having a clean resolve there, Facebook probably didn't get what it had hoped for. And so now it has to consider this huge decision, which has big implications in which other technology companies will be watching closely. Um, And it could end up that it goes back to the oversight board. But I think that that was a really interesting development and created more work for Facebook that they're going to have to deal with. And it will undoubtedly be covered by the media and, and generate a lot of attention publicly. All right, guys. Thanks so much for coming on the 411. Um, Great story. Thanks, Corey. Thanks.
the bigwigs and the rank and file in the tech world are probably aligned on at least one thing. They are kind of sick of Zoom. Even Zoom CEO Eric Wan said this week that he's tired of having so many back-to-back meetings on his own video conferencing platform. He expects most Zoom employees to return to the office at least two days a week. So what does new office life look like, especially when employees are hooked on at least some flexibility being built into their schedules after a year of working from home? I often ask these kinds of questions to Justin Bedekere. He's the CEO of a startup called Raise Commercial Real Estate. Hey, Justin. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. Um, So uh, break this down for me. There's been relatively few tech companies that have come out and said so far, we are just getting rid of offices altogether. Um, There are some, but they're definitely like in the vast minority. Instead, companies are taking often what kind of looks like uh, what they call a hybrid approach. What does that look like? So there are different versions of of the hybrid. Um, And I think it's going to be you know, we're going to go through this huge experiment of how to make this work. Um, there's going to be different characteristics in every company. There's office-centric hybrid, which means that all or most employees are connected to a physical office, um, and they have the flexibility on when and how often they come into that office, right? So, you know, uh, you just saw Google's big announcement around, you know, most of their, 80% of their employees will be in one of their offices three days a week. Um, and then the t- other two days a week, they can uh, still come into the office, they can work from home, they can you know, work from a coffee shop or whatever. And th- the office-centric hybrid means that most, if not all, employees will still be connected to an office. They just have much more flexibility on when they come in, how often they come in, um, and you know, how, how they use this space. Um, and this is going to be really common. So, so I want to go back to Google for a second, um, just because that was that was some of the news of the week. Them at least sort of talking about more flexibility for their employees. Um, it's always seemed to me that Google sort of sets the tone in some ways for how tech companies and companies everywhere think about real estate. Has that been has that been your experience? Like, is Google influential in this conversation? They're very influential. They also kept investing in real estate during the pandemic, right? And and we're always bullish on it. I will say though that they were pretty late to uh, embrace the more hybrid workplace. Um, you know, I think that also historically just offices have been so important. You know, they've built so many around the world. They buy buildings. Real estate is a huge aspect of, of Google and running Google. You know, of the bigger companies, Microsoft um, was one of the, you know, the first um, of, of big tech um, to kind of really put out their plans for a hybrid. Facebook, you know, had had Zuckerberg's, you know, um, big town hall where he kind of projected that within 10 years, you know, up to half employees of, at Facebook would be remote. Um, but Microsoft was the first to do the truly hybrid where all of their employees um, would spend, you know, more than 50% in the office, less than 50% out of the office. And Google kind of actually followed suit to that. So you have these companies, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, plenty others that have invested so much money, billions of dollars in their real estate footprint. And yet they are saying things need to change. We need to offer more flexibility in 
some ways. Is there like a tension, do you think, sort of at the heart of this conversation with companies that have already invested so much in real estate and yet need to be competitive on a talent level of, of kind of keeping employees happy still? Big tech is hiring, you know, um, you know, 10 to 20,000 people a year, right? Most of the time and most of the people will still be centralized in a, a office, right? They have so many offices around the world. Like, in fact, like 20% of Google employees will be at any one time moving around and working in a different office than they were the previous year or the previous, you know, month. Um, and so I don't think there's a tension at all. In fact, during the pandemic, big tech basically kind of saved the market. You know, they were the ones that were like making huge investments, Facebook taking down 800,000 square feet in New York and Apple to Amazon. And so like th these companies grow so fast and that like, you know, they're looking to the future. And I think it's just going to be a net positive for more people that work in the office and more people that work remote. Um, and, you know, that's going to take a long time to kind of like really manifest to a meaningful portion of their population being remote. Big tech companies are essentially still gobbling up real estate. Help me bridge that gap with sort of the state of particularly the San Francisco real estate market right now, where um, you have seen the availability of office space more than double over the past year. The amount of sublease inventory is at a historic high. Prices are expected to come way down. Um, what is going to happen to these sort of tech-centric real estate markets, which obviously have implications about urban economies and service workers and, and everything like that? Last year, basically everything went to a standstill, right? Everyone was trying to get rid of their space as fast as they could. Um, no one was in the market. No one knew how long the pandemic would would be, like what would happen afterwards. And the, the, there was a moment, and you, know, and you saw all the memes, right? 11 uh, Salesforce towers worth of space, you know, on, on the market and, you know, basically like, um, you know, just about reaching uh, dot-com bust era, you know, um, uh, statistics. Um, and that's all true. Um, but what, once the Pfizer announcement um, happened, like not even the distribution or anything, the, the mentality shifted to, OK, I have to start thinking about this. And then January and February come. And, you know, our company um, alone had our our second biggest quarter ever in history. And that never happens in the first quarter. And so, like, what we're seeing is a lot of companies that just froze their searches, um, tried to downsize, tried to subly space, come back, you know, and take advantage of the market. You know, you're going to start seeing some big headline deals of like really amazing companies that not only benefited from just this, you know, kind of move to the cloud and, you know, the me the metaverse like Asana, but like really incredible brands, um, pure software companies are um, very close to making big statements on San Francisco and, you know, people being back in the office. And so it's going to take a couple quarters. We just get this like really unique le leading insight into what's to come because we know what's happening on, on the ground. You know, buildings are filling up. You know, what, one of our clients um, was taking two floors in a, a 200,000 square foot building. Everything else was available within a month every single other space had either been retaken by the company that was going to sublease it or new leases. Um, and so we're seeing also really big companies that had big headlines about, you know, um, putting their space on the market, uh, reoccupy, 
you know, 75% of it, all of it, you know, even 50% of it. Um, and so, uh, you know, there absolutely are leading indicators that this market is coming back. Um, and it all, it's all factored in, right? The economy is built around, you know, downtown and the office community, all the people and companies that serve people come into the office transit. I've never seen a discrepancy like this in terms of buying homes versus renting. And so, you know, seeing when people come back is going to be huge. Hey, maybe the the death of the office uh, was uh, that that obituary was written a little bit too early. Justin Bettecare, thanks so much for coming on the 411. It was absolutely a pleasure. Good talking with you. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening this week. Thanks to Alex, Sylvia, and Justin for joining me on the show. And thanks to Ariella Markowitz, who produced this episode. Have a great weekend, everybody.